Are we back on the radio? I hope we are. I think we are. It's, it's good to be here. Father Mike Malloy here with Karen Gibbs. We're at the Mustard Seed in Rapid City, South Dakota today. Once again, it's a beautiful, beautiful day here. I hope that's true throughout all of our listening area, that all, everybody in Minnesota and Wyoming in, in the, the Dakotas are enjoying some beautiful weather today because we certainly are. Um, it's good. To, it's good to be back. It's it's always good to be here. I was I remember doing the banquet earlier today, and and I talked about how sometimes it's kind of harried and crazy to get here and get set up, and then once you begin to have conversations with people and dialogue, it just um, it's just a wonderful, uh, great experience. So it's good to be back um, here on the air with you um, and with everybody that's listening to us. So. Um, Today, or excuse me, not today, but this month is um, the month in which we, we in the Catholic Church pray for all the souls who are in purgatory. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting, as I listen to the Catholic radio station, um, uh, driving here, there, and everywhere, um, that's a topic that comes up a lot. A lot of people ask about or question about, and then I realize that the teaching on purgatory is unique to the Catholic Church, uh, our belief about that. Right. And so I can understand that some people would be curious about that. But it's interesting to me that it comes back again and again. And, and I think, I guess my sense or my my curiosity about that is that people are saying, you know, I know people have died. Death yeah. is a reality. Right. And I, I want to know more about it. I want to know that there's something more. Right. That there's something more. Well, and I want to know they're okay. I want to know they're okay. Yeah. That's a big one. Yeah, I, I think that and, people and, want to know that those their loved ones are okay. Yeah, and, and I think uh, I really I've often thought when people talk about purgatory and they give all the scriptural references and all those things. I mean, because it isn't it isn't just something that the Catholic Church made up. It's right. grounded in our scriptures and in our tradition. But I often think that it is such a such a message of hope. Um, uh, purgatory is it's, it is yeah it's like you know even because we all know we die imperfect imperfect we know we sin we know we in various ways turn away from god and 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 to to know that someone i've loved has died and and to hear this message that says no the mercy and love of god can really still reach them you know that it isn't like we just have to assume all is lost um and you know we never know um what God does with us, but um, anyway, I just think that's probably why it, it comes up a lot on in terms of um, conversation and on the radio stations and people call in and stuff. They want to know about what's happening to my loved ones. Where yeah. are they? And or what's going to happen to me? Or what's going to happen to me? Yeah, yeah. I think those are all very real dimensions or aspects of of why that's a a, yeah. a topic that comes up a lot. So so it's interesting. Anyway, month of November, we pray for all those who have gone before us in faith, and especially those who might need our prayers because of purgatory. Is that purgatory calling now? I wish. <laughs> There's a few people who have passed on. I wouldn't mind having a conversation with. <laughs> yeah, me too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, well, this is the signal for um, straight talk. We're ready to move into that segment of the program. It's a good half hour, and we are encouraging and inviting you to call in with your questions, with your concerns, with your comments, whatever it is. Um, you can call 877-795-0122, 877-795-0122. You can also go on the Facebook page and uh, leave a question that way, and then they'll get filtered to us, and we can answer them. So um, we look forward to whatever it is that 
you want to talk about. It's, this is a half hour that is yours. It's, it's um, you know, we can we can fill it if we want to, but we just as soon fill it with the, the, the thoughts and the concerns that are important to all of you. So just call in, let us know if there's a question or a concern that you have. Um, we'd be happy to answer that for you. Well, and I'd like to see sometime a non-Catholic call in. Oh, that would be interesting, yeah. And have, the, have you... You know, talk with them and, yep. and answer their questions. You know, yep. or a little mini version of Catholic Answers Live. Yeah, right. Very mini. Very mini. <laughs> very mini. <laughs> we don't. We, we. The only thing big around here is the sky, right? Yeah, that's true. That's true. Every, yeah, every, everything else is just sort of. We just be okay. It's, it's just small, we're so. okay being here. Yeah, it's wonderful. So, um, anyway, so we'll wait to hear uh, what questions you have. Um, and it looks like we have a first one right now. This is from Gianna. Would like to know why do priests wear white collars? Um, and for those of you that thinking that we might have people out there who aren't, you know, um, necessarily Catholic, a priest usually wears a, a Roman collar, and the collar either has a, a white sort of check in the middle, or sometimes it's white all the way around. And um, uh, in the reason for this is interesting. Now, th- there's a lot of history to this. First of all, um, when you think when you talk about um, any kind of religious garb, whether that be, for example, habits that sisters wore, habits that um, religious men wear, or even the vestments we use at Mass, um, we have to go back historically and realize that those most of those came out of the, the styles or the, the type of clothing that people were wearing. For example, a religious community of, of women might have fashioned a, a, a habit that was really looked very much like what women wore in the time that the religious order was founded. Then as fashions changed, the religious communities maintained their identity um, through the specific garb that they had chosen or designed. Well, that's also true of priests. Um, there was a time when um, when uh, the fashion for men would have been some sort of a white collar, probably something that would be, sort of be akin to... Um, what you'd think of when you put a, a bib on a baby when you feed them, but some sort of a white collar that would have hung down um, onto the chest would have been of some kind of stiff material, either some right. kind of starched or white material, and it was considered fashionable. And 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 eventually, that's where the we think that the Roman collar, the white part of the of a priest collar, actually began, came from. And then over the years, again as uh, as uh, styles evolved. That collar um, changed in shape and size, but eventually, what I understand is that that one of the things that um, resulted in it being really short, close up around the neck, was for convenience and ease, especially when 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 priests were involved in, like for example, out on the battlefields in terms of ministering to people oh, and things right. like that. It was to a, a you know to sort of get it out of the way, so to speak. So it's it's a it's a complicated um, process that any of these things go through. It's not simply like someone one day said, let's make a, a priest shirt to look like this. It evolves, it develops over the course of years. Um, and, and that's what, what, I, what I would suggest, or that's where I think, uh, or at least what I've understood is where a, a priest's white collar come from. So, hope, Gianna, I hope that helps you. Thank you for so, letting us know that. This next question, this is actually my son Rex, and he came to me with his religion course. And there are some things I am just not qualified to teach in high school. But he wanted to know if if I could and I couldn't. So I said, well, we'll ask Father on Friday. But could he, you explain oh. what it means that the Son is begotten of the Father? You what know, I, the, the word begotten, well, especially. Begotten, yeah. 
You know, I, I, I'm stretching back here into my theology training and my, and my history, but at the Council of Nicaea in 325, um, there was a huge, I mean, the council was actually called together because there was a very serious debate going on in the church over the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It was really a, a council that was called together to, to resolve the Trinitarian issue, like what do we believe about who God is? And... Um, and out of that council, there was a language that was developed and put into the Nicene Creed, which you know is is named after the council itself, which really talks about the relationship of father to son. And the, the early church fathers did not specifically choose, for example, the word the son is born of the father, because that would suggest um, a, a coming into being of the son. Um, in relationship to the Father, and we don't believe that. We believe that the Father and the Son are co-equal, and, they're, and, they're, and that the Trinity is eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but we talk about how the Son comes forth from the Father in the sense of his incarnation is being sent into the world, um, and that we talk about a real relationship that exists between the Father and the Son. Um, so they they are, um, and so when we talk, we, we the, the early church chose the the word which we translate begotten obviously there was a greek word because <clears throat> the council of nicaea would have been done in greek we choose this word that says it talks about that expresses the fact that the son is is co-eternal always present um you know didn't have a beginning or an end but that he comes forth from the father and so that's why we choose the word begotten as opposed to born from right. which would give a very different connotation so all right. Well, I hope that helps, Rex. I mean, obviously, Father's more qualified to teach a religion course than your mother is. Mm. But, okay, now we have another question, and I thought this was quite timely for our Rapid City Diocese. Uh, Loman wants to know, has the process of choosing a bishop changed from earlier church times? If it has, what has changed? Wow, Loman, that's a great question. Um, and I'm going to have to plead some ignorance in terms of how the early Christian church um, chose bishops. I mean, we know in the scriptures that, um, it, like, we we know, for example, Paul tells us in some of his letters that um, he would go to a community and, and uh, preach and proclaim the good news and form a Christian community. And then uh, I'm assuming a, a leader would rise up or become evident that there was someone in the community who was um, uh, capable of leading the community. And it says that then Paul would lay hands on him and um, he mentions that in his letter, in the letter to Timothy, where he says, he calls him to stir into flame the spirit that was given to you when my hands were laid upon you. He was, chose mm -hmm. Timothy to be the leader of one of the early Christian churches. Um, so I know in the very early church, that's how that happened. And, you know, in a very real way, although the, the process of how that happens, because it's far more complex now because of the complexity of the, of the world, um, it, basically it's, that's what happens. You know, um, I would say that now, we need a bishop, and so there's a process that the church goes through whereby names are surfaced of people, of, of men, um, of priests, who are determined through prayer and reflection and study and you know, kind of examination, are determined to be you know, potentially good leaders of the church. And, and so that process is much more complicated and involved than it is expressed in the early Christian church, but it's basically the same thing. Um, and so right now, um, the, the nuncio, who's the Pope's representative here in America, is, is in a process of deliberation and discussion and collecting of 
you know, the needs, the uh, concerns, the, the difficulties of our diocese, and who would be someone, what kind of qualities and characteristics do we need in a bishop, and trying to surface the names of those who would be potential candidates. And, you know, we can see it all in kind of a very human sort of way. We can say, but wait a minute, this is how the Holy Spirit chooses to work, much like in the early church, where you know, Timothy manifested the necessary leadership qualities and characteristics and then was chosen and or, and uh, had hands, hands laid on or was ordained by, by Paul. And so um, it's the same process happens in in that sense, although, like I said, today it's much more complicated than it was then. So, Well, and we've read saint stories where the people rose up and asked a saint to be their bishop. Yes. You know, I find that, that I mean, is almost insane. That <laughs> I mean, could, we could all just rise up and say, Father Malloy is going to be our bishop. Yeah, that wouldn't you work. Know, but how... <laughs> that would really be insane. <laughs> <laughs> but how would... I mean, the concept of the people choosing their bishop seems to me just so just almost unknown in well, my head and I, and I agree and we are not a, a congregational church in the sense that what the people decide like the majority rules but in a very real way that part of that process that the holy that uh, the nuncio goes through as he surfaces his names also involves reaching out to some lay people yeah and asking those same kinds of questions and um, and you know recognizing that when for example, you as a layperson say to me, this is what we need in our diocese. This is mm-hmm. the kind of bishop that we would need, that that information can be filtered on too. So in a, in a, in a very, I mean, I think it's true that the faithful do participate in this. It's not like it was like, for example, when Ambrose was made bishop of right. Milan. Exactly. You know, kind of a public acclaim or public acclamation. Um but in nonetheless, even in that situation, that choice on the part of people still had to be ratified by the church. It had to be ratified by the leadership of that time. And so um, it's, yeah, it's not quite like the same. Again, it's much more complicated and, and probably nuanced, but probably basically the same process. So thanks. That was a great question. Well, we have some some people on the phone. This is great, Father. Oh, okay. I hope you're ready. I'm we ready. Have, we have David from near Artesian, South Dakota. Are you yep. there, David? Yes. Hi, David. I even know where Artesian uh, is. I have relatives in that area. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, yeah. uh, north of Mitchell. Yep, exactly. I know I know where it is, yeah, because i got relatives living in that area that um, I'm from the east. My family's from the eastern part of the state. So what's your question, David? Um, I am not Catholic. Okay. But my, my question is... is well, I'm a 15-year drug addict in recovery for three and a half. And my question is, what? how do I know what God's will is for me? Uh, David, first of all, congratulations on three years of recovery. Um, I came from a family of alcoholics, and I understand... Um, I understand that journey uh, from the vantage point of having walked it with my family. So congratulations on you and and God bless you and, and keep up that that uh, that recovery. But here's what I say to people: God's will for you, David, is the same as God's will for me and for Karen and for all of us. God wants to be with us. God loves us. He loves us far more than we can possibly imagine. And that's what Jesus is all about. I mean, Jesus, he, God came down to earth to be with us because he wanted us to know the depth of his love for us. And so God's will for us, simply stated, is that he wants you to be with him. Um, 
And so when you look at your life and you say, um, for example, can I, if I can go back and take, for example, the, the, the issue of, of addiction, you'd say, well, my choice to drink, does that bring me into relationship to God? Does that help me to draw closer to God? And and then the other side of that is that, does that help me then to live in love and, and share that love of God with family and friends? And if the answer to that question is yes, then I can engage in that activity or behavior. But if the answer is no, then I have to say it is it is not God's will that I do this, that God doesn't want this from me because because engaging in this behavior is going to turn me away from God. It's going to turn me away from those I love. It's going to cause division, hurt, pain in my life, all the things that God doesn't want for us. So it's in some ways, I think it's very simple. Um, it's a very simple sort of thing to look at. Now, it becomes complicated when we have to look at the ramifications of what all of that means. And not everything is equally clear. Like, is it God's will that I should buy this new car? Well, you know, probably, again, you have to ask the question, is buying this new car going to help me to um, be a better person, uh, love my family more completely, uh, fulfill my ministry, my purpose in life, those kind of things? Then that would all be part of God's will for me. If it's going to be a toy that's going to take me away from my family and, and cause me to go out and race around the roads and be separated from them, that's not, not God's will for me. And so, um, and there's a lot of things in life that maybe are, we would say, are neutral in the sense that that they neither pull us away or detract us from God. But that's what I always stated. If that make, does that make sense, David? Sure. Well, I, I appreciate that. Um, again, I encourage you and, and uh, support you in, in terms of your recovery. Just hang in there um, because it's, uh, in the end, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to be able to be free of anything that keeps us from God. So take care of yourself, David. Thank you. Thank you. You bet. All right, we have another caller on the line. We have Tonya from Lake Park, Minnesota. Are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, how are you? Is it Tanya? I'm good, Father. How are you? No. Uh, it's Tonya. It's Tonya. Interesting. Okay. I know Tonya. Yeah. Oh, hi, Tonya. Good. <laughs> okay. um, what's your question, um, Tonya? So well, it's, yeah, it's kind of a question. Um, so I had gone to a retreat, and the priest at the retreat um, was where he wore lay person's clothing mm-hmm. um, the, the, pretty much the entire time. And it just it made me feel really awkward, like especially going to confession, because uh, I felt like I was just going to a normal person. Uh-huh. Um, and so I asked him, I'm like, Father, why don't you wear regular clerics? And, and he said that he was part of an order where they believed in their, in their mission or their ministry that they were supposed to look just like lay people so that they could, like, in a sense, like, appeal to the, I'm just like you, I'm walking this walk with you, talking this talk. Um, but for me, it had, like, the totally opposite effect. Um, like, I didn't feel like I wanted to confide anything in him because he looked like a normal person. <laughs> um, so, you know, i um, just wondering, like, I don't know, maybe as a priest, maybe you could, like, shed some light on that for me, because I'm only seeing it as a layperson, right? And and I grew up with priests being cool um, and awesome, and I, I realize not everybody has that experience with priests. Um, so, like, when I see one, I'm, like, super excited, and then seeing one in lay, lay clothing, I was like, are you sure you're a priest? Um, <laughs> anyway, so if you could shed some light on that, I'd appreciate that. You know, t- 
I, sh- I mean, I think I can, and, and I appreciate that. Um, appreciate your question. You know, I think what you're talking about, first of all, I think any of us come at life from our experience. And and so for you, uh, that Roman collar, the, the black, and you associate that with priests that you admire, respect, and love, and you find, you feel drawn to. And so to encounter someone who says, I'm a priest who doesn't look like that, obviously, like as you said, it's kind of discordant. It's like, this doesn't fit or this doesn't fit into my experience. And I know you know, you know, because we all do that, well, he's a priest if he's validly ordained, um, you know, if the, and, and, um, and so, you know, I assent to the fact that people are priests regardless of what they have on. But, but what you're expressing, I think, is very important in terms of um, what's the whole place or purpose of symbolism in our lives, you know? And um, uh, when a priest puts on a certain kind of garb, just like when a sister puts on a certain kind of garb, you know, they're making a statement about who they are, about what they're about, what their life is about. It's very much akin to when a married woman or married man puts on a ring. They're saying, this is who I am. You know, I I have I now have a partner in my life, and that partner is present and part of my life all the time, and so that symbolism becomes beneficial for two things. It becomes beneficial for the person who sees it from the outside, because it helps you to identify and to know who that person is. It also helps the person themselves. Like it helps me as a priest, if I'm in the in a store and somebody says hi, Father. I kind of sometimes I forget I have my collar on, so I look at him and I go like, "How do you know I'm a priest?" And I go, "Oh, that's right, I got my collar on." You know, and and there's been times in my life too where I've been reminded that I'm a priest because I'm wearing my my clerics. You know, and that sounds kind of strange, but it's like, you know, I might be inclined to want to use some language that's not very appropriate, and I say, "Wait a minute, I'm a priest, and I know that because I I'm a conscious of what I'm wearing, and I want to I want to live my discipleship in a way that's meaningful." And, and so what you're expressing makes sense to me. I think it's why, you know, priests wear garb. It's to identify themselves and connect with people in the role and the ministry that they have. Um, obviously, the religious order, I don't know the religious order this priest is from, but in his religious order, they have a different understanding of that. And in certain situations and circles, um, seeing priests um, in in a more ordinary way might really be beneficial and helpful. If, if I've been hurt or wounded by a priest and um, I might tend to look at a collar and just back away, like I don't have anything to do with him or, I, you know, I might have fear or anger. Whereas if I meet a priest and I get to know them and I, I'm not initially um, aware of the fact they're priests by virtue of what they wear, then I might... Um, um, be more willing to approach them. And then I find out, oh, they are a priest and they're not, it can soften or change my, my, um, uh, approach to them. Um, so, you know, there's, I guess those are the kind of the ways I would look at that for me as I've gotten older, I think it's important, especially whenever I'm doing any kind of ministry, whenever I am in my ministry and role as a priest that I wear a collar because I want people to know who I am. I also often introduce myself, even if I'm not in a collar, say I'm Father Mike Malloy, because I never want I never want people to be shocked or surprised or even embarrassed because they suddenly realize they're in the presence of a priest. But I've also been in situations where I haven't worn my collar and I, I recognize that sometimes people um, maybe approach me in a way that they wouldn't if I was in my collar. So um, anyway, that would be my take on all that. But it's a great question, and I'm glad you called in, Tanya. Did that help? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely, Father. And I really appreciate the feedback. Um, yeah, and a lot of what you said about symbolism and, like, you know, the recognition of what it is, like, I was like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just needed to know what he was. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, um, and, so. and I appreciate and respect your sense of it's hard for me to go to confession to him because, you know, because that that symbolism isn't just an external shell. It's part of your experience and identity of what priesthood is. And so it's not unimportant. And you shouldn't be like, oh, I shouldn't have those feelings or attitudes, you know. I do. I mean, I think if you need to go to confession, you should go whether the guy's wearing a collar or not. But it's perfectly okay for you to say, this seems strange because it's not what I experience and understand, you know. So. Sure. Well, we still have time well, thanks, for, yep. for, for more questions. Okay. If you want to call in at 877-795-0122, I think that would be great. Okay. Um, and we have a question online from Stephen. Um, how are relics confirmed as real, and do they provide graces? Um, how relics are confirmed as real um, because you know you have to basically it's a it's kind of a, a historic scientific sort of research sort of thing, um, where you um, try to go back and trace the origin. Where did this particular relic come from? And uh, and um, and, and oftentimes you'll see relics that have a little name underneath, which which I would suggest means that someone has done that research and, and has a, a clear sort of line that traces back to that saint. And so there's a verification of that. Um, do they provide graces? I guess I would say this way. God provides grace. But can God use relics? Can God use um Objects certainly, because he he certainly uses water and wine and bread, um, and transforms them and allows them to become um, you know the sacraments and, and initiate us into his life into his grace. You know that's what grace means is relationship with God, and so the relics become a way or a, a means for us to deepen that relationship to God. In, in a, you know, in other words, to receive grace, and the way that that happens is. Um, you know, because uh, contemplating the life of that saint, recognizing the holiness of that person, and opening ourselves up to wanting to become like them, to read about them, to study them, um, or to simply be in the presence of a, of, a, of a relic that is a reminder of that saint, those all open us up to the grace and mercy of God and allow God to touch our lives in ways that maybe he wouldn't be able to because we aren't open to it. So in that sense, I don't think that they provide grace, but they become a means or an avenue for us to receive uh, grace. And so um, that's what I would explain in terms of how do we confirm that. And then um, the whole issue and question of grace. So thank you, Stephen, for that question. I appreciate that. We have had great questions today. I know. How much I... time do we have left? A little bit of time. We can, you can still call in, 877-795-0122. Or you can um, reach us on Facebook uh, either way. Um, still love to be able to um, have an opportunity to visit with you and ask, have your questions asked. The ones we've had have been great today. Appreciate that very much. It's been very interesting. So, um, so I I think that you um, you wrote this beautiful article in the West River Catholic. Yes. And it, when I read it last night, which I probably should have just gone to bed, but I'm like, no, I'm going to actually do some homework, so I'm prepared for the show. <laughs> you know, so we can talk about something besides supper the other night when my kids were <laughs> wonderful. Absolutely, my, my wonderful. kids were wonderful. My yeah. ki kids, you were wonderful. But um, this article you wrote about it, the thing 
title says, Entering Silence, We Open Ourselves to the Presence of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And again, like I said in the show before, Advent is my favorite Silent, yeah. because of silence, because we're preparing and, and stuff. Can you can you maybe speak to that? Well, I, as, I, as I travel around the diocese, and all the years I've been a priest too in celebrating Mass, I guess I haven't, in myself, I have this growing desire for quiet because I believe in that silence, in that quiet, I can um, hear God speaking to me. Um, And I suppose other people could do that other ways, but I just think we live in a world that's so, so consumed with sound and noise that we really need moments where we stop, where we absolutely stop and we turn off everything and we are truly um, quiet. Um, And so... um, and so I wrote the article just to say, in the context of Mass, we really need um, to be um, we need to be quiet. And I think of it especially in the liturgy, liturgy of the Word, where you know we do a first reading and then we move right into a second reading or a right. response without that pausing and saying, just let that sink in a little bit. And what happens is, as I as I've gotten older and celebrated Mass more and more, it's like I I, I crave that, I long for that. I long for that moment where I'm, I'm saying, okay, Lord, I want you to touch me because I'm open to that. And I, so I just think we, you know, and the church gives us that in the liturgy. They give us the importance of um, of moments where we, we are, there's a real a real call for silence. And, and I, so I think we just need to work on that. So I would encourage people, especially those of you who get the West River Catholic, to read the article and, and maybe visit with your priests and say, can we have a little bit more silence? When people understand why they're doing it, right, and they appreciate, then they can grow to appreciate it. Like I said in the article, I think eventually people would say, "No, no, no, we we, we really we, want this. We want the silence. We want we want these moments where it's just we can just enter in, just be with the Lord. Yeah, exactly. Especially so, after communion, to just have that time to yeah. just silently be with our Lord. Yeah, uh, we we had retreat this year, and I I presided all the masses, and one of the younger priests walked up to me afterwards after the first mass, and he said. Thank you, thank you for um, giving us time after communion. Because I, you know, we sat there probably for, I don't know, two three minutes, and he said, "Thank you, that really was beneficial." And I think it is. I just think um, it's important to have that. Um, I also think when we do Eucharistic adoration, we should have long yes, periods, long periods of nothing, no background music, nothing. Yeah. And I know some people say, "Well, I really like the background music." Well, I do too. But I think sometimes if we sit in the silence, it can become uh, truly. Um, truly un- uncomfortable. So, um, and, and, and that uncomfortableness really opens us up to God's presence. So, all right, we are ready for uh, to take another break. Before we do, um, we'd like to. Um, where are we at? I'm. Um, right after uh, this break, we're going to do our <laughs> ten-minute tour, I think, but I'm really not sure. So, hang on. We got all kinds of stuff ready for you. We'll see you in a little bit. Bye bye. <laughs> 